Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi and welcome to our podcast with me, Ella Mills. Our podcast, Delicious Ways to Feel Better, is a weekly show focusing on absolutely everything that matters to us at Delicious Yella. We really believe that feeling good is about a holistic 360 degree approach to our lifestyles and that wellness is about so much more than just what we eat or how we exercise. It's our relationships, our mindset, our sleep patterns, our stress levels and just how we look after ourselves on a day-to-day basis. On this podcast, we'll be breaking down anything and everything to do with mental and physical health and sharing small, simple changes that'll hopefully inspire you to feel that bit better. So you know that we're very passionate about understanding the why behind things at Delicious Ciela. It's really the whole kind of reason for being, to be honest, and certainly the reason for being for this podcast. And today we're going to be talking a little bit more about understanding anxiety and depression and getting to understand the depths of human emotion and the hidden realms of the mind with Carl Dicey Roth, who is a professor of bioengineering and psychiatry at Stanford University. And I think this is a particularly interesting topic because it touches so many of us, obviously, with the prevalence of mental health challenges today. I think so many of us, definitely myself and and Matt included in that, have struggled with anxiety or depression at points in our lives. And we understand how perhaps it physically or emotionally feels like. But I think there's a limited understanding for so many of us, and again, us included in that, on what's really going on in the brain. And I think sometimes that can perhaps stunt our empathy for those around us. So I hope this is going to be a really helpful and useful episode. And it is our last episode of this chunk for the year. We're going to be taking a break, as I said last week. Over the summer, we have got some really big things happening at Delicious Ella that we want to first and foremost kind of really just put all our energy into. And then we'll come back with a bang in September with a podcast. As of next week, we're opening Plants, which is our brand new restaurant which has been the project of 2021 so far. And the idea that we're just a week away from opening now feels so good. So please do come see us. If you want to book a table, just head to www.deliciousyellow.com. We are working um, on a new chocolate bar, a new caramel cup, and two different savory ranges at the moment. I am also finishing my nutritional therapy degree um, for this semester at the end of this month. So I've got a few huge assignments. I need to write a book over the summer and I'm doing the next 150 hours of my yoga teacher training. So basically it's going to be a busy couple of months and I didn't feel I could give the podcast everything that it needs over those few months as well as all those deadlines, big projects. So taking uh, some tips from the podcast and really trying to look after mental health and um, our kids and 
try and create a bit of space for everything. So we will be back in September and I absolutely can't wait to see you then. And for now, we will dive into this episode with Carl, which, as I said a minute ago, I hope will help create a deeper sense of empathy and connection with one another. So I hope you enjoy it and welcome, Carl. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's nice to be here. So your book's called Connections. I wondered just before we get into it and into your work, if you could just start by giving us an overview of what you do, of what the book's about and why these connections are so important. Well, I've been working on this for, for many years. I'm a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. And the reason this is the right time to share these stories with the public is that there's been an amazing convergence of technology and neuroscience on the one hand, and these very important moving human stories at the nexus of geopolitical upheaval and personal change. These two threads came together, the science and the personal stories all at once. And for me, this was a very important thing to to share with the world. And I think and hope there'll be connections that people see to their own lives. Absolutely. I think there there was something you said in the epilogue, sorry to start at the end of the book, and you mentioned it actually in reference to violence, which made a huge amount of sense. But it also struck me as something that was maybe relevant to all of us more widely. I'm sure that there is a huge number of listeners today who struggled with their mental health in some capacity, whether that's anxiety, depression, friends and family themselves struggling with other mental health conditions. And When you talked about the need to have these conversations and these needs to open up these conversations about mental health, you were talking about it in relation to violence, but it just struck me as part of the importance was to kind of create this deeper sense of empathy and conversation and understanding of one another, because I think it's so easy to go about our day to day without truly understanding what someone sitting on the other side of the table is maybe going through. You know, this is, you're absolutely right about that. And this is a remarkable thing about psychiatry. On the one hand, we deal with these extreme forms of human emotion that are universal and that we've all experienced either in ourselves or our friends or our family. But those extremes also give us insight into the typical day-to-day sorts of experiences that we have, the emotional upheavals, the emotional swings. What we have in this in this book is uh, stories that share with people about how we can look at the extremes and use them to understand the, the day-to-day as well. Now, we've all seen in the, in the past year or the past few years, we've all seen extremes happening around the world due to the pandemic, due to other things that have happened. But what we're seeing in psychiatry is that we can understand the natural human condition by what goes wrong in the psychiatric setting. And so that's a theme in the book. It's a theme in the human stories that I'm able to share in the book. And I think, as you point out, it's it's an insight that, that we should all talk about. Psychiatry actually is being called upon to address things that are very urgent and pressing in society that are not even necessarily related to psychiatry per se. Aggression, violence, extreme reactions to stress. And we're at a time where Finally, neuroscience and neurotechnology are giving us ways to speak about this in a precise way, in a scientific way, in a way that that really matters. And so this is what I hope to to share, this alignment of of the stars. There's a lot of hard stuff and a lot of difficult stories, but there's also hope uh, for understanding. So Carl, when you said there, and I know it's a, a big message of the book, that in studying the extremes in psychiatry and in mental health and human behavior, it also, as well as creating more empathy there, sheds more light into a greater understanding on the day-to-day 
of I'm sure normal mental health is not the right expression but the sort of normal status of the human mind and as you touch on things like the um, end of stress and violence and aggression and again these kind of quite normal to some extent emotions what what are the key takeaways the most obvious learnings there well you know there's a, a few good examples for example we all know there's, there's a whole chapter on social behavior human stories about people who experience the two extremes, people who are on the uh, autism spectrum, who have uh, difficulty with social interaction, difficulty with handling the high rate of information that comes with a social interaction. That's one extreme. On the other extreme, you have people who are actually sort of hypersocial, you might say. There are very interesting syndromes, one called uh, Williams syndrome, where people have just a stunning level of instant connection, instant bonding, rich, expansive storytelling. But these are people who are not uh, entirely healthy. This comes from a chromosomal deletion, amazingly, so a loss of some some DNA. And yet these people have extreme hyper-sociability. And so we can look at that, and we can look at all the natural variation around us and within ourselves. We can see sometimes we're more, we have that social energy, and sometimes that feels depleted. And we can look at these extremes, and we can look both across the population and within individuals, and we can ask ourselves, what does this mean? And then we can go to the neuroscience and we can say, where are the cells and the circuits that are governing this social resource, this, this social supply that different people have different amounts of that can get depleted, it seems, even in a person? And it turns out there's some real exciting neuroscience there, ways we can understand that in a quantitative way, even talking about bits of information in the real sense, like bits in your computer. We can talk about bits per second flowing through individual neurons and we can say okay here's an autism related condition here's on the other extreme and here's how it all boils down to real bits in the brain that is unbelievable i think one of the things i really took from the book that i really appreciated is that again if we go back to thinking as i said so many of the people listening to this will have experienced mental health in some capacity i think we all know what for example the kind of physical sensations of anxiety feel like or perhaps depression But I don't think that many of us, definitely myself included, really know what's actually going on in the brain. And even the way there's a few paragraphs you spoke about what's actually happening within the brain if you have anxiety. I found it really profound. I think it gives you a lot more compassion for yourself and again for everybody else and empathy in the fact that this is a kind of biological situation. That's a very important point. You know, it's interesting that and that understanding that it is biological, even before we get to new kinds of treatment, just as you're saying, the understanding that it's real and physical and biological, that by itself allows us to feel so much empathy for the people who are suffering. When you look at people who have suffered from severe anxiety, severe depression, historically, it's been very hard for friends and family to to understand deeply what's going on. And that's led to all kinds of exacerbation of the problem of the issue. There's this frustration, you know, why is this person acting this way? It doesn't make sense. But just understanding the physical, biological nature has been incredibly illuminating. You mentioned anxiety. This was, you know, we published a paper uh, in the British Journal Nature in, in 2013 on the assembly of anxiety, how the different parts, the different features, if you will, of anxiety get assembled and put together into a coherent state by the brain. And if you think about anxiety, it's got different parts to it. First of all, we have physical feelings. We have our our heart beats faster and we breathe more quickly. Okay, so there's the physical stuff. And then you've got a 
behavioral change. You avoid risky environments. You avoid, even if there's not a threat, you avoid things where there might be something that, that goes wrong. And, and that causes problems very often, that avoidance. And then there's even other features. There's It feels bad also. And that's actually different from the other two things I said. That inner feeling of negativity, that is its own part of the state. And what we found in 2013, we found out how those three bits, those three parts are all brought together by a master control region in the brain. There are cells there that reach out and get one part and reach out and get another part and reach out and get another part. And it all gets bound up into the state of anxiety. When we published that paper, I got emails from around the world from people who had suffered from anxiety, who hadn't been able to leave their house for you know a long period of time, just saying thank you for, for showing how physical it is, how, how biological it is. And that by itself brings hope. Of course, we want to do more than that, but for psychiatric disorders especially, a big step is understanding. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, and you, you said it as well, which is that in the past, as you said, I think there's been a stigma around a lot of different mental health conditions and it certainly doesn't help the situation. And that you said that the kind of more traditional approach, which I feel like I heard a thousand and one times growing up, which is that it's just a chemical imbalance. We, we just can't look at it like that anymore. Well, the exciting thing is we have been able to move beyond that way of looking at it, which honestly was a good first step. You know, that's what science and medicine are. It's, it's humanity's best current guess at, at the situation, often informed, but often not enough. The exciting thing is we've now moved beyond that to a whole new level of understanding that is, is much more well-defined and precise. And that is the nature of these connections uh, across the brain. We now know if we take this example of anxiety we just spoke about, it's those connections from the master con control region that go out to get the different parts of anxiety. We now know exactly what those are. We know where they start, we know where they go, and we know that they matter. This is from the neurotechnology side. We developed a method called optogenetics, which lets us use light to turn on or off literally one connection or another connection, or another connection across the brain. In this case, in vertebrates, mammals like us, mice uh, and rats, we can do this in fish. Animals that have much of the same brain structures we have, just smaller. And we find that we can very precisely cause each of these individual features, these individual bits of anxiety, by using light to turn on or off, literally cause or suppress firing of these exact connections across the brain. That's a level of insight we never had before because we couldn't do that sort of uh, precise experiment. So this is an exciting time because we've gone beyond chemical imbalances to, to the actual physical connections in the brain. It's absolutely extraordinary work, honestly, it really is. And I wondered, do these threads, these different connections within the brain, do they help explain the kind of positive or negative internal state that people perhaps are prone to? They do. And this has been one of the most remarkable things that, that we've discovered is we now understand exactly how value, positivity or negativity, can be added to or subtracted from even neutral things. We all, it's just like we know when we have a cold, we can't, no longer can smell or taste food as well. And it's, it's always surprising when that happens, how completely that whole realm of experience has just been deleted from, from our lives. In much the same way, people with depression, they cannot experience joy or pleasure or reward, even in things that are normally 
joyful uh, to them. It's completely gone as, as completely as, as taste or smell are deleted when you have a, a cold. And this is amazing. It's terrible. It's a source of great suffering and misunderstanding, but it's also quite amazing. How does that happen? And what we found is that there are specific connections that do indeed have the ability to add or subtract value, positive or negative value, and layer those onto even things that are completely neutral, that had no value at all. And this can happen instantaneously. And so this, this has been a, a, a very important insight that this value is just a physical and electrical, well-defined process like uh, anything else in biology. And that, that will bring understanding. I, the hope is to communicate that to people. So now when you have a friend or a loved one who is suffering from, from depression and is unable to be motivated to get up and do things that they normally would do, to do things that you would think any person should do to show the right level of joy at seeing your children or grandchildren even. Now we can understand and relate and empathize to this is physical. This is gone now. And we can, we're working on treatments, but it's, it's gone and it's not this person's fault. It's a, it's a physical change in the brain. And so in that, where does that come from? The sort of age-old nature versus nurture question. Are we born predisposed to things? How do we get to that point? Well, there's, there's certainly uh, components of both. There is, of course, the nature and the nurture aspects. You, and I think an important thing about the, the book is to take that long evolutionary perspective, though. Like, how did we come as a species to be where we are now with certain predispositions to feel a particular way in a particular situation. Well, the reason we're like that, the reason we tend to feel some things is that it was important for our forebears to feel that way at a particular time in a particular way. And so those who had a particular connection in the brain that made them feel a particular way at a particular time, those did better. Those individuals survived their world better, were able to, to reproduce better. And those connections are set up by genes. There are genes that say, during development of the brain, an outgrowing thread, a connection, we call this an axon from one neuron, one brain cell, that's going to go all the way across the brain to another spot. That's guided by little molecules that are encoded by our DNA, by our genes. If different individuals have different versions of those genes, those threads will be guided in different ways across the brain. They might hit one spot in one person. They might go a little farther in another person and hit a different spot. And over time, depending on the world, what happens in the world, those who had the right connections in their brain that were best suited for their environment did better and ended up giving rise to, to us in the modern world. And so there's no question that nature is a huge part of it. We were set up by that process, by evolution. Whatever was working better is how we are now. But there's also a great deal of, of changeability in the brain. We call this plasticity. People, individuals in the world, in their lives, their brains change. They learn and they can build upon those connections that are pre-established. We can increase or decrease the power of those connections that were already established by evolution and development, but they can still be turned up or down in strength in, in their power. And, and that happens through experience. It happens through teaching, through learning. And so there's, there's hope that the connections themselves can be tuned somewhat. And how do you, how do, you do that? What are you seeing is able to increase those connections and, and likewise decrease them? 
Yes. So this is this now gets to the to the really uh, exciting hope for the future. We're not at a point now where in human beings we can reach in and turn up or down those connections instantaneously. There is hope for for understanding. Once we know that the cells that are involved are the ones we should target, any kind of treatment, any kind of discovery, medical discovery now becomes more guided, more principled. We could now look for for medications that instead of just changing the chemicals across the brain, as you mentioned earlier, this, this chemical imbalance idea didn't really get to the specificity of connections in the brain. Now that we know, okay, it is a connection from point A to point B that's involved, and maybe we find medications that can turn up or down the efficacy of that connection itself, then we can try to translate that to human beings and say, okay, instead of just treating your brain like soup and changing the levels of chemicals all across the brain, maybe we can give a more precise medication that will change the strength of, of one important connection in the brain depending on a patient's symptoms. And so that's the hope for the future. We're not there yet, but now we have the foundation to get there. And aside from medication, does anything else help improve the connections? Yes. So the brain is a, is a beautiful, tunable device. It changes with experience. It changes with conversation. You and I, our brains are changing as we're speaking right now. And there's nothing more precise than words, sentences, and ideas in changing the operation of the brain and even its aspects of its physical structure. So people can learn. People can, through experience, through, through therapy, through working the processing of emotions, through working on using insights into themselves to guide their behavior, people can actually train themselves to not have as extreme negative emotions, for example. This is something we use to treat anxiety and panic disorder as we can actually work on specific behavioral therapies, specifically very, very precise insight-guided talk therapies that can help change the, the, those connections in the brain. So words are potent. Words are specific. They're right now the best tool we have to get into a specific connection in the brain. In the long term, I will be able to use medications as well. Wow, that's extraordinary that words are that. It's amazing to hear that from you, that they're that powerful. And so thinking about those changes and pathways, I know in the book you talk about a few patients, for example, dealing with grief or kind of post-traumatic stress disorder and trauma and the way that that changes the way that you're dealing with emotions and dealing with the world around you. So is it that those sort of, I, I don't know if extreme events are the right word, but as humans, as we, we process big changes in our state, big changes in our emotions in our lives, that that, again, really fundamentally changes the pathways and the connections. You know, we all, as we look at our lives, we look at moments that changed everything for us. And we all have them. And in the, in the stories in the book, there are uh, a number of those as well, even single moments where, where everything changed. And that's pretty interesting how that happens. You know, I, I recount how I became a psychiatrist, actually. I was planning to be a, a neurosurgeon, and I had always been interested in the source of human feeling, how it's so powerful, how emotions can be stirred by words. But I thought that neurosurgery would give me the best access to the human brain to understand and to help treat uh, patients. But then I had a, a, in an instant, that was all changed for me in a, in a single moment as in a required psychiatry experience that I, I had as a medical student. And just seeing one psychiatric patient who was suffering from a, a terrible disorder called schizoaffective disorder, which is a whole 
storm of mania and depression and psychosis all wrapped up into one. And I remember the, the exact moment of looking at that patient and hearing him. He was yelling at me, in fact, at the moment. And I saw the suffering and I saw how completely we had no idea what was going on. And as a scientist, that, that also you know, intrigued me as well. So it was the mix of the suffering and the, the, the mystery that completely upended my life in, in one moment. How does that happen? Uh, you know, that, that I don't yet know, but there must have been some structural predisposition. You know, you couldn't have complete rewriting of everything. There had to be something there ready to go and then uh, a switch that could have been flipped in some way to allow the, the new program to, to take over. And in other stories, that's a personal story, but there's another good example from the book. This is a, there was a patient who became manic after 9-11, September 11th, 2001. And this was a, a person who, you know, he, he was a retirement age. He had been a successful insurance executive and had never had even the slightest bit of, of psychiatric dysfunction in his life or nor in his family. Nobody had. So out of the blue, this happened. He was on a, on a trip in, in the Mediterranean and 9-11 happened. And two weeks later, he flipped into this uh, state that we call mania, which is a state of extremely high energy, speaking rapidly, not sleeping, having intense plans and risky behavior, supercharged charisma and outgoing connections to other people to a level that can be extreme and, and even harmful. And it was a full mania triggered by this, this world event. And, you know, here now, and this is how these extremes can help us understand ourselves, we now understand a little bit more about mania, which is part of bipolar disorder. And that gives us insight into how something can change so quickly, why, what structures might be involved. And optogenetics is giving us some insight into how these energy levels can change, how the reward-seeking, the goal-directed activity can change instantaneously. So it's a convergence of these human stories and the science that is finally giving us some insight into how it happens. I find it extraordinary to think that the, I think for me, at least, as I said, I keep coming back to the word empathy, but I think as you start to unravel this for us, it's very powerful to understand the fact that these connections in the brain start to affect so much of the way that we express ourselves, both physically and emotionally, and that something, as you said, is changing your energy levels, for example. And I guess just I was obviously hearing hearing that example and I hadn't actually put it together when I was reading the book. But as you said, obviously, that that is the mania is probably one one end of the continuum of the conversation. But obviously, for so many people, there's been a lot of trauma and shock and anxiety and fear of the, the world event that we've just had or are currently having with COVID and the extremity of life of the last year. And, and would you imagine that, again, perhaps on a smaller scale, but that would have impacted on people's brains for the, the fear and the anxiety and the kind of, yeah, I think for a lot of people, the trauma. Yeah. And there's no question it's all of the above. There's fear, anxiety, trauma, there's social isolation. And we're, we're already seeing this in psychiatry, a worsening of symptoms. It's, I think we'll have to see once we collect data over a few years, we'll see are the disease numbers different in terms of the number of people, number of people suffering. But there's no question that the symptoms are worsened by all of these issues. My patients coming to me now, to me now, almost all of them have 
a way of looking at their disorders, their disease, or their or their psychiatric issues that are all exacerbated, all worsened by the pandemic in very fundamental ways. A lot of them talking about the social isolation as, as a critical part of it, of course, compounded by, in many cases, the loss, the bereavement, the stress, trauma, anguish of the, of the past year. So everybody is different now. There's no question about it. Symptoms are worse. Emotions surrounding the, the symptoms are, are worse. Now, how do we how do we deal with this? First, the first step is understanding, and going forward, we have to look at each other and support each other. We have to realize that everybody is suffering in a different way, depending on their condition, depending on the experiences they had. And the second thing is to realize there may be changes in society that that, that result with the, for example, with everything that we've seen with the social uh, upheaval, with the isolation, and then a rebound from that. Things may be different in the world, and we'll have to see. That's not going to be easy for people to adjust to as well. Psychiatry is going to have to play a big part in all of this going forward. People have worse symptoms, more extreme emotions about this. We don't know how long it will last and and what the long-term impact on society will be. But I, I think people will turn to the science. I hope they'll turn to the science and say, okay, what is the physical nature of these changes? What is the real biology behind it? And we'll understand each other and support each other better as a result. Thank you, Carl. Honestly, I think as you you put it so succinctly there, as we start to actually understand what's going on, even in just such short terms as we've been talking about today, it gives such a better ability to relate to other people and empathize with other people Mm -hmm. and perhaps just be that little bit kinder to one another. If you had one closing thing, something that you wanted everybody to reassess when it comes to conversations around mental health, what would that be? You know, I I think a theme of the book and a big reason I I felt compelled to to write it was for people to realize that there's this very deep commonality, that there's this universality to our inner states that we have. And there's a reason that we have them. And these are shared, these inner states that we have, these, these inner feelings, they're, they're more extreme in some people, less so in other people, but they're shared, they're universal, and not only all around the world, but uh, far back in human history. These are the shared threads, it's the shared fabric of, of humanity, and, and we now know in many ways we can state exactly what these threads, these connections are. And I, I would hope people would come away with a feeling of, of unity uh, from the book in a way that, that brings all of humanity together across space and across time. Amazing. Yeah, infinitely more connected than I think we often appreciate. Well, Carl, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Good luck with the book. I'll put all the details in the show notes below for anyone that's interested um, in learning more. It's an absolute brilliant book. Thank you so much, Carl. Thank you. Uh, delightful conversation please do share the episode with friends and family if you've enjoyed it and have a lovely lovely Tuesday thank you so so much bye